sponsored by the Dunleary Rattown Local Enterprise Office, Dublin South FM. Yes, folks, and welcome to another week here at Dublin South FM. As you know, at Business Eye, we try to bring you the best people that we feel can benefit you as a business owner and as a consultant. This week, I have a wonderful gentleman, Rory Clayton. He is a board director. He's ex-military. He is a consultant. He works in retail. He's worked in, in oil, banks. You name it, this man has actually consulted and contributed his wisdom and knowledge to many industries. And I'd like to introduce him today. And today we're going to talk about intuition. We're going to talk about leadership and the uncertainty that's going on in the world and how companies can actually just knuckle down, let the governments do what they do and just focus on business. Rory, welcome to Dublin South FM. Not at all. Great pleasure to talk to you all. A man that has worked in many industries, one of the things that you focus on, and it's at my heart as well, is leadership. How do you perceive leadership within an organization? For myself, it's about community. It's about listening to people and understanding from the top level to the bottom level what everybody's needs and what their wants are. What about yourself? Okay, so you've got it, you've got it 100% right. You can't do leadership unless you have followership. A followership is about identifying what people's individual needs are and fulfilling them to their benefit because I find a happy and committed worker who feels that being genuinely, and I say genuinely, looked after makes a bigger contribution because they're not worrying about what's going on outside the world of work because they know that's going to be all right because you're reading them correctly. So let me give you a very quick example. I, I worked for a major global bank a good while back we were restructuring a data center before data centers were really the thing, but we had about 800 employees in there. And the uh, the technicians were working for investment bankers. So they were writing the software for investment bankers to do their thing. Investment bankers are very tough people. Um, so, and they're particularly unforgiving when things go wrong. We established that for the most part, things tended to go wrong on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, the most inconvenient time for our techies who on those occasions ought to be off for the wives, playing with the kids, going to do the shopping and the like. Um, one particular technician who was absolutely brilliant, always seemed to be the fall guy. He always seemed to be the guy who was being called out. And I watched him over a period of time do his brilliant work, but his demeanour completely changed. He was, you know, collapsing from within. Anyway, we did, we did a bit of research on him and um, discovered that he was under big pressure from his home life, had a, um, a partially disabled child, but a wife who frankly was struggling because he was never there to do what the husband, you know, does. So we decided that um, we needed to move quickly. And what happened was, um, cut a long story short, um, when he got called in next time, before he actually got called in, we had um, a really highly qualified daycare nanny turn up at the house. We had a chauffeur-driven car turn up. We um, organised a, um, a really high-grade takeaway meal to arrive home with him that evening. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, the wife found that the, the problem she was having, looking after the children, was taken care of. Um, her husband came home expecting to get it in the air. He didn't. He came home to a very happy wife because we'd also found the time to take her off in the chauffeur-driven car to a day spa somewhere. And um, when uh, it came to what's the supper, doorbell rang and there was a guy with a fantastic meal who brought it into the kitchen and prepared it all. Now, I'm not saying we do that for every employee on every day, but it's an example of the extra mile you need to go in order to look after people and identify what their individual and personal needs are. Because if those are destroyed by the nature of the work you're giving them and when you give them that work, they're not going to commit to you and eventually you will lose them. They'll go where the pain is less. Yeah, I would agree. And yes, I, you know, there'll be a lot of people listening to the show here and they'll be going, oh, I'm going to ask my boss for a chauffeur driven limo. <laughs> I've, I've heard it on the radio. Yeah. But, but the truth of it is, it's about asking. If you just stop someone in the corridor and look into their eyes and ask them, how are they getting on? Would they be willing to have a chat with yourself to see if there's anything that can be streamlined within the organization? Because those small conversations can have a huge impact on someone in an, in a company to go, do you know what? 
someone cares about me, my voice is being heard. Yeah, well, it's a benefit of listening, isn't it? I, I, I'm old now, I'm 72, so I've been around the block a good few years. But um, I found one of the, the big change points in my life was when I properly learned to listen to people. And then I suppose the next big change point was not only did I listen to people, but I followed up on what I heard because people appreciate that. You know, that for them, it's, it, it comes across as it wasn't a casual conversation. It went in one of the boss's ears and then flew out the other, and it was never mentioned again. It means the boss actually did listen, and they did something about it. And weeks later, when lots of other things have probably happened in their lives, they remembered it. And when they bumped into me next time, they said, what about so-and-so? Is everything okay now? Or is there anything I can do to help? That's what being a good leader is partially about, the ability to listen. People, strategy, organisation. You know, we've, we've talked about talking to people. Organisation that needs to survive and thrives needs sales and needs the exterior person and communication to understand them as well how would you talk to an organization who wants to grow its business but is missing that link between what it has to offer and its client base so my experience is that organizations on the whole and i apply this to every sector i've worked in down the years are on the whole pretty good operationally you know they could do the day job day after day after day but what they're not good at is looking over the hill and seeing what's coming towards them and preparing for that. So organisations tend to be highly tactical and live in the moment, but are not at all strategic and plan for the future. So the message to organisations is you need to invest in the talent and the people and the thinking behind creating great strategy. And then importantly, it's not just about writing a plan, it's your ability to implement and measure. Because if you can't measure, you don't know how your plan is progressing. No plan, in my view, ever size contact with the enemy. So the moment you implement your plan, something's going to go wrong somewhere and you're going to have to adjust it. So just take that thought and park it up. Then look at the rhythm cycle for a business. I have, I have followed this rhythm cycle religiously, but I say in the first year of any cycle, you go in, make your assessments. You you look at your people, you look at your skills matrix, you look at what you're trying to do to see if there's a gap between the skills that people have and what you're asking them to do and work out how to plug up those skills. But you make sure you have, in my words, proper strategic fit, a degree of matching between people and the organization and its objectives, and then equipment, money, skill sets, et cetera. Once you've done that, you drop your plan and typically implement your plan in, in year two. Um, year three, you probably will have to adjust your plan. And year four should actually tell you that as a result of your initial research, your assessment of the situation, filling any skill, skill gaps you had, then trying your plan out and then adjusting that plan, you should have a smooth run at it. And in year four, you should um, derive the benefits. And of course, if you keep that rhythm cycle going, every year you're always doing an assessment for what may happen in four years' time. If you can get organisations to do that, miraculously, even organisations who feel they're doomed to failure time and time again, miraculously, organisations, I find for the most part, are able to turn the corner and suddenly they start getting better and better and suddenly things start going well for them. It's it's not an accident. Um, I have a... Um, is saying i won't repeat it in full because it's probably not for radio but it's something along the lines of something something planning equals something something performance i think poor planning equals poor performance um so plan is the message and teach yourself self the skills to plan but most importantly once you've planned concentrate on how to implement and measure because you need to know how you're progressing in order to know whether you need to make any changes in your plan and plans always need to be changed and modified I would agree, you know, the three levels that I, I would work at and it's different language, mindset, systems and processes. A strategy needs to be fluid as well. You know, it can't be set in stone, but building that strategy and looking over that hill is one of the, the biggest things that every organization needs to, to have and do. And you're right, a lot of them do live in the moment. The one thing that I've learned is that 
you know, tactics can be thrown up right away. Tactics, you know, you could create a tactic or build a tactic or whatever it may be overnight. It's the strategy part that takes the long, the longest. And a lot of companies want to work on tactics and not strategy because they find that it's stressful or uncomfortable because they're facing the truth or reality that they've been sort of, I would say that they've been hiding or trying to not. I, I know where you're going. Um, one of the problems is language. So, and, and, and the nature of business is how it's evolved. So um, technology, the technological revolution we've witnessed say, since 2000 has caused the world to speed up. As the world has got faster, business has got faster. The nature of business moving very fast is people tend not to have the capacity or time to look over the horizon, i.e. market intelligence, create strategy, etc. So they inevitably are forced to live in the moment and they, and they live in the now. You know, the mobile phone has created the biggest now movement you've ever seen where people spend you know, every minute anchored to a phone, expect instantaneous responses, instant gratification wherever they go. So our capacity to, to think long, think slow, which is the bedrock of strategy, is being eroded and people haven't appreciated it's been eroded. So hold that thought. And in parallel with that, think about all those changes that have happened as a function of technology, which have stopped us um, talking to each other. So, for instance, you you no longer have to talk to someone at the checkout in a supermarket because you can check yourself out. You no longer go into a bank if you can find one that's open to get money because you go to a cash till. And guess what? They're going to be stopping that pretty soon. So the the capacity and potential to interact with people is driving in in most people um, an inability to communicate and work in teams, talk to each other, you know, overlay that with the pandemic. And, and shut them all up at home, and you further reduce people's ability to 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 think and talk, and drive um, an inclination towards live in the moment. All of that basically kills the future and champions the moment. And of course, if you only live in the moment, when the future arrives, the future will therefore always be unexpected. You won't be prepared for it because every future has to be prepared for in some way. You know, I don't know if you're about to become parents. You know, you need to prepare your home for the child that's about to arrive. You know, it's got a, it's a small thing. It's not going to be able to look after itself. You're going to have to adapt your life. Business is no different. You know, when thing, when change comes at you, you will have to adapt. You will have to compromise in some areas. You'll have to retrain. You'll have to redirect. You may have to reallocate responsibilities. But if you erode your capacity to do that, and your capacity to do that starts with your ability to communicate people and get them to align behind a single purpose. So your ability to, you know, leadership is about followership, but followership is saying to people, listen, we live in a very uncertain world here. Um, whatever journey we take is going to be a bit rocky and it could be dangerous, but guess what? If you follow me on this journey, I will lead you down a path which is the least dangerous and gives you the most guarantee of success and the most guarantee of safety and security going forward. That is, that's strategy, strategic thinking, but it requires a whole suite of skills, which technology has, frankly, industriously, busily, and without regard for what's really going on, thought to erode, which is why you know, running big organisations nowadays is actually very, very tough. Not that people don't want to run them well and make them successful, but they don't actually have the skill sets to do it half the time. Your military background... How much of that have you realised it has been your saving grace when you walked into the corporate world? That's interesting. I mean, my military background was quite a long time ago. I, I did go to, I suppose, in layman's terms, quite a senior level in the services and, and did some very big jobs. For instance, I ran corporate communications for the British Army um, I ran the recruitment campaign for officers and soldiers that's recruiting 15,000 people, um, soldiers in a year, say six to 700 officers. So, you know, big, meaty things. Um, the Army taught me two things fundamentally. One was, unless you communicate your purpose really well, you're probably going to fail. So big tick in the box. The Army for me, 
is all about communication. It's all about the transference of direction, orders, um, briefing people, make sure they do certain things in a certain way, often at times when they're hugely frightened, um, because that's the nature of, you know, armies and war fighting, etc. So communication was a great tick in the box. Um, And the other one was um, to be brave, to have a sense of courage, because when the when the chips go down in the armed forces, fortune only favours the brave. You know, when you come under pressure, you can't at that point say, oh, I don't like this, I'm going to turn away and go in the opposite direction, because not only will you let yourself down, but all those people are looking to you for direction in at a particularly tough moment. You'll let them down too, because you erode their courage and their bravery and their capacity to do tough things in tough moments and not give up. So it taught me those two things. So as a consequence, if you translate that into the world of business, I don't get involved in businesses that that are going well. I never have done, never will do. I don't necessarily get involved in businesses that are in terminal decline. I arrive into businesses that have a problem, normally a problem shrouded in multiple layers of complexity, because I'm good at, intuitive good, I think, probably, at um, plying through multiple layers of complexity very, very quickly and say, right, we're going to do this, and then convincing all those around me as to why we should do it and then doing it and moving the organisation to a different place. So the two big things I think the army gave me was um, the courage to be courageous and brave, because if you're not courageous and brave, you're not going to make the big stride and make the big change, which most of these situations require, And if you're going to make these big strides and big changes, you've got to communicate with extraordinary clarity. And that often means um, across different genders, across different ethnicities, in different languages, um, against different characters and personalities, and often in the face of some quite fierce opposition. You know, a lot of people might be frightened, but equally, they don't want you maybe at a personal level to see you succeed. So, you know, they'll be doing all sorts of things to trip you up. And only somebody who is, I think, very nimble, very skilled, can read people in depth, identify where the trouble's going to come from, head it off at the path, identify where they've got a bit of a guiding coalition, i.e. people who are genuinely for you, want to see you succeed, gather them together because they provide your platform of strength to operate from. If you can read all these situations and, and do it comprehensively and quickly, you stand a good chance of being successful. And of course, if you're, I don't know, a transformation director, change manager, call me what you will, then my capacity to be able to do this is very important because I tend not to arrive when everything, as I said, is swimming along beautifully. I tend to arrive when there's a bit of a crisis. And if we don't resolve it quickly, the organisation is going to go under. What obstacles have you hit when you've walked into an organisation where they know there is a problem, but some of the people in the organization aren't willing to accept it let me start at the personal level um my pa my dad um years and years ago as i was coming to adulthood it's the only bit of advice he really gave me i think looking back on it i mean he was a, he was a, he was a great dad but did he sort of say do this and do that no he didn't but one day he took me to one side and he said, listen, I want to have a chat to you. He said, um, if you follow true to form and your life turns out to be my, my, my life, people are either going to love you, and if they do love you, they'll love you unconditionally almost, or they're going to absolutely hate you, and that'll be unconditional as well. They won't be able to explain why they hate you, but it'll be the way you look, the way you speak, the way you act. Whatever it is, you will trigger in people downright nastiness and they will be all out to try and trip you up. He said, that's what my experience has been. He said, it's something about the way we're made. It's something about our DNA. He said, I don't know what it is, but that's my advice to you. And guess what? He was right. I, didn't, I don't go looking for trouble. I don't go looking for enemies. But I have found in life that I can meet someone, and I kind of sense whether we're going to get on, but I also kind of sense whether, guess what, we're probably not going to get on. And I don't do anything to guide that conversation. So... Coming to um, coming to organisations, I'm very very quick to identify who's in and who's out. And where I identify someone is out, I have the conversation with them early and say, "Listen, I've got a job to do. 
and I'm going to do it, believe me, and I'm not going to be turned, I'm not going to be deflected, I'm not going to be undermined. So you have a choice. You either get on the train and come with me, or you get off the train, and I'll help you, and I'll get you into something else which you're happy and comfortable in. But having you around, I'm trying to do this particular job, isn't probably going to work. So I have that conversation really early on. As a consequence, it doesn't necessarily go smoothly, but I tend to move forward early in my assignments with a team that I feel are committed to the cause. Now, key in all of that is the principle I follow, which is hackneyed, it's tried, it's tested, and it's often quoted, but that is the fish rocks from the head. So the person at the top of the organisation sets the pace, um, they set the style, from them comes the direction. If the person at the top of the organisation is off, sour, won't fall in, aggressive, um, uh, feels it wasn't their fault, any of those things, and many, many more, if that person is not on board the train, you need to get rid of them and get someone new in. So often in my assignments, for instance, I've gone in and the, uh, the CEO um, is clearly not going to cut it. They're not going to become a change leader. They've been doing things in a certain way over a long period of time. They're not going to suddenly start doing things in a different way, even if I do my level best at mentoring and coaching. So I affect change and I make no apologies. I'm pretty brutal. I'm nice, but I don't hang around. Because the longer you hang around, the longer the organisation is in crisis, the longer it's in crisis. It's a bit like, you know, I don't, untreated disease. Diseases don't cure themselves. You leave it too long, and you get to the point that no amount of medicine is going to solve it. I'm writing down questions, and you're answering them. Before, you're talking about them before I get to answer you. Right. <laughs> That's that intuitive uh, connection. And I do agree with that. I think, you know, you have to go into an organization. And if, if you're going into a place and there's that energy isn't right between the mix between you and the person that you're working with, you have to kind of back off and go, look, you'll have to find someone else because it just makes your job harder and their job harder. But if, if you are in sync with each other, then the process runs a lot smoother as well. Mm. I mean, people are people. People ask me down the years because I have been doing what I do for a very long time, both in the services or used to be put into difficult organisations. You know, the armies and navies and I don't know police forces—they're not immune from having parts of them which aren't working properly. So this is, you know, common to any organisation, frankly. But when I reflect back on it and look at all the organisations I've worked with and looked at all the situations I've, I've worked in, the thing that ties them all together is the prepared, preparedness of my part to um, act early and act fast and, and go deep. And if you're, not, if you're not prepared to do that, then you're going to find you, um, you have a problem. Equally, I, I don't arrive in as some distant figure standing there with the sword of Damocles in his hand or a scythe and everybody says Christ who's that creepy nasty guy who's just swinging the sword around yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, in, we're, we're in trouble you know be people for me or again me be they staying or going my aim is to treat everybody with respect kindness and support so I, I devote as much time if a person is exiting the organisation to giving them a soft landing, getting a crackingly good job, because it's not that they have failed. It's not that they're not good at what they do. It's just that in the circumstances that we're operating in, in that particular moment, they're not a fit for what is needed. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a fit for an organisation for life. But, you know, I, I always say to anybody I work with and who works for me, the trick is knowing when to get out, knowing when to go, knowing when your time is up. Don't overextend your welcome. You know, it's like yeah. having people to stay with you. You know, two days is pretty good. Three days, unless they're really close friends, is stretching it. You know, so and so it is with organisations. You identify the problem, go in, have a good plan, you know, implement the plan, solve the problem, leave the organisation and preferably leave it before you said you were going to leave it because that's the best way of moving. You know, most organisations get ill because they're stale 
you know, people hang around too long. The same team have been in power too long. They run out of ideas, but don't identify they've run out of ideas. They get um, enmeshed in the trappings of power and the big salary they get and the lovely office they have and the company car they drive. And they'll almost do anything they can to, you know, preserve that protected. I remember talking to one CEO of a organization which was in deep, deep trouble and um, suggesting that, you know, maybe board meetings could be a bit more inclusive and maybe communications could be a little bit broader. Maybe we could be a little bit more candid in what our problems were and talk about them and, and take the advice of everybody around the boardroom table. And the CEO looked me straight in the eye and he said, listen, he said, he said, you might think that. He said, but I didn't get where I am by telling anybody anything. And he meant it. So, you know, and that's not uncommon. People tend to preserve themselves almost to the exclusion of the future security and success of the organisation. There's been another observation I have. The observation that I pick up as well, if someone doesn't leave an organisation and hangs on and when they are pushed out, that self-worth is damaged for them as well and they have to go through that process. The second thing as well is when you give somebody control, it is very hard for them to release the control because a lot of CEOs and, and a lot a lot of people make decisions for what is in it for me consciously or subconsciously. And a true leader will go, what is best for the organization? Three things. One is, you know, you have sympathy, which is, oh my God, thank God, I didn't, that didn't happen to me. Then you have empathy, which is, oh, God bless you, can really understand. But the true thing, which I believe is compassion. And you have to have that compassion as well when you are looking at all the different elements and people within an organization. Well, I, I'd, I'd, sum, I'd sum it up as saying you have to have a genuine likeness and fondness for people. You know, if everybody, it doesn't matter where you're educated, what your religious beliefs are, what your um, educational accomplishments are, everybody deserves the chance to be valued, trusted, and given the maximum opportunity and the maximum um, uh, potential to be successful. It's fair. That's a meritocracy. A lot of organisations I go to, you know, are clearly ruled by cliques. It's not helped by something I said earlier to you, you know, fish rocks in the head. You go to an organisation, you know, if the leadership's not working, then probably the rest of the organisation isn't going to be working properly. So leaders need to change. And that's all grand. But the problem with that, because it's quite common nowadays that, you know, people come into organisations, they're there for two or three years, and they either move on because of their career, they want to get to the next big job, or they move on because they're jumping because before they've been found out, or they move on because they're kicked out, any one of the aforementioned. But the problem is the replacement, when they come in, understandably, they want their own team. You know, I, I say in organisations, commercial organisations, the relationship between the chairman and the CEO is an absolute crucial one. They're not doing the same job, but they have to be aligned and their actions have to be complementary. If that relationship's not working or is fractured or they're travelling in two different directions, then the organisation's probably going to fail at board level. The second big relationship is the one between the, the CEO and the finance director. They need to be joined at the hip, and frequently they're not. And then after that, you have the relationship between the executive and the non-executive, and then the relationship between the board members themselves. You know, as well as um, doing big transformation programs with organisations or supporting them with ambitious growth, I also do board level evaluations. Um, some of them I do pro bono because I like that sort of work. But the number of boards I work with, which are frankly completely and utterly dysfunctional, they're full of good people with worthy intent, but if you look at their ability to come together on the board and do what a board is meant to do, which is, you know, create and advise on strategy and then stand back and ensure the executive implements it, absolutely not. That's the last thing they do. It's full of, you know, what did somebody say to me recently? Vast majority of boards they work with when they should be on the bleeding balcony are down on the dance floor jiving around. That's true. I, I have seen board meetings where everybody taking notes and everyone going yes we do this and and taking the information and then when the board meeting is over everybody leaves and i've looked at the table and they've all left their notes behind 
and they've gone and it's like a vacuum of where everyone's talking they do this but when they walk out the door they forgot about about it and they've all got involved in their own thing or what they need to do within their own little unit and you kind of go all the conversations that's been had here and all the information none of that is going to be implemented unless you follow up and ask them individually what are you doing what are you doing with what's been discussed? It's interesting you say a, a very high-end, very senior, hugely experienced um, Irish consultant who I, I met quite late in my business life um, is a specialist in something called commitment-based management. I'm not going to go into the detail of it. Um, it took me a long time to get my head around the principle of commitment-based management. But fundamentally, it's, it's your ability to look at a task that needs to be done and then with complete faith that it'll get done allocate it to the right person who has got both the time and the skills to do whatever it is you're asking to do, the com- make a commitment, in other words. And if at any stage they're unable to deliver on what they have promised you they will deliver, that they have a preparedness to come to you and renegotiate the commitment to your entire satisfaction, thereby creating what they call conditions of satisfaction, which is the discharge of the commitment to the standard and timing as previously agreed. Now, this high-grade, high-end consultant I'm talking about eventually managed to hammer that notion into my skull because I didn't easily and consciously adapt to it. But frankly, since I learned that, I have used it time and time and time again because, as you rightfully point out, you know, boards come together, they meet, they sign up to do all sorts of things, in certain times, when you go back, you know, weeks later and say, right, was it done? No, it wasn't. Why wasn't it done? Well, I forgot about it. Who should have been doing it? I can't remember. And so they shamble on. So they then have another board meeting when, guess what? They discuss the same old things, but the organisation doesn't move forward. Now, somehow it survives, but the thing the board is there to do, it's not doing. And yet these self-same people are being paid to do that job, but they don't do it well. So boards need a lot of work on, I think. I, I call that value-based commitment. Yeah. It's like, it's like even with pricing. When I'm pricing as a, from a trusted advisor point, I don't go in on hourly rate or go in on value. What is the value that everyone gets out of it? Rory, the way the world is at the moment, everyone coming out of lockdown and pandemic as well seems to be easing. And as we've all moved from that, there's still uncertainty in the world, especially in Europe. What are your thoughts on that and and how an organisation should deal with it? Because, you know, every price is going up at the moment and it seems everything now comes from either Russia or Ukraine and not from China, you know. So how are, how should companies adapt to the uncertainty in the world? Good question. It's not easily answered. I know how, how I adapt to it or the, um, the guidance I give to organisations I work for. Alongside my earlier comments about, you know, leadership, the functional or rather dysfunction of boards, etc., the ability to listen, all the things we've already discussed, um, I said there are certain things that organisations do quite well and other things they don't do so well and that the nature of technology has driven organisations and people to live in the moment and they become isolated. In, in parallel with what I said, the other big thing that's happened is people have become incredibly risk-averse. So they, they avoid situations and avoid conversations which would force them to drive hard decisions and operate in unknown territory. So if you think about it in an operational sense, the moment is pretty easy to assess because I'm sitting on this chair looking out this window. I can see the front gate. You know, all is well in the world. I don't see any strangers within my field of view. Um, Now, if I start thinking a little bit harder and say, well, I can't see anybody, but maybe there is someone out there who might do me harm, that then starts to put me under stress because guess what? I start imagining things. And as a consequence, I feel uncomfortable. And as a consequence, I then retreat back into my comfort zone, which guess what? sit in my chair, look out the window, look at the gate. There's no one there. I'm going to be all right. The reason I'm saying that to you is because another big feature of organisations that I find is their risk management, that ability to monitor, assess, and plan for 
risks and aim off for them is appalling. So as a consequence, quite major things happen and people say, hell, how do I deal with that? I've never had to deal with that before. So take Germany. Over a long period of time, for better or for worse, Germany um, under successfully weak government manifesting as strong government. So this is the Merkel years coming out of the um, reunification of the two Germanys um, has become massively dependent on Russian oil and gas. The reason that happens is because they well remember, you know, the Second World War and the horrors of that, and what it did to Europe. So um, Germany arose from that, encouraged by the Allies, as to being fairly anti-military, an army which was not an army, very heavy restrictions placed on it, um, a capacity which became a national uh, right of pride to get on with anybody and everybody and avert the very circumstances which triggered, say, the Second World War. So, you know, short history of Europe. <laughs> But they also became over-dependent and they, and they neatly sidestep the issue that, that situations and organisations and relationships always evolve. The person you love today won't necessarily be the person you love tomorrow, and nor will they be the person who loves you. But if you, if you operate on, on the view that, for instance, I'll be, I'll be neutral, I'll never have a position, I'll always be the same, I will not adapt to changing circumstances, you will arrive at a point when you are no longer fit for purpose, you're no longer fit for the circumstances you're in. In other words, you you demonstrate a complete avoidance of risk. You ignore risk. Risk doesn't happen. Risk doesn't have to be planned for. We don't have to adapt when things change. We just carry on being the same. And of course, what, you know, all of us are from Darwinian times. We are pre-programmed to adapt. We have to adapt to survive. And, and yet, the, the very nature, particularly in Europe, of post-war Europe, has been to try and remove risk and put in monolithic superstructures like the EU. I think the EU's done a fantastic job, by the way. I'm, I'm a, you know, not a Brexiteer, I'm a fan of it. But we have, to a great degree, become a mammy state. We've, you know, massive social welfare programmes. We're totally reliant on. When those aren't in place, we don't know what to do. It's all someone else's fault. It's never our fault. So our capacity to survive and adapt to rapidly changing as some pretty awful circumstances and know what to do is, is not particularly good. And you look at the risk management culture in companies and it's pretty poor. Now, what do you do about that? Well, I come back to fortune favours the bold, but I also come back to say that when things go wrong, you have to act and you have to act fast because it won't wait. It won't go away. It won't get better. And therefore, the earlier you realise that life is one continual compromise and that what you do this year will probably not be fit for purpose next year. Either your product array is no longer required or um, somebody's worked out a faster way of manufacturing, so you're going to be left behind because your manufacturing is too expensive or um, your distribution chain is broken or your supply chain, raw materials are starting to go up, you know, and you're sitting there saying, well, I'm too frightened of my customers to raise my prices to reflect the reality. So I'm going to carry on giving them products at ever lower margins. And eventually the margin is going to be underwater. And eventually my company is going to go, going to go bust and I'll be away. But guess what? By then I'll have changed jobs and gone to another company where maybe somebody has been a bit braver or they're not that far down the pipe yet to go, go under. All of this is very dangerous stuff, but it starts with having a proper risk management culture in your organizations. Now, organisations, you know, at board level are meant to have things like audit committees, remuneration committees, um, audit and risk committees, you know, who are meant to be looking at all this stuff all of the time. My experience is they might have it in name, but they don't have it in action. So my encouragement to anybody is just obey basic principles that we were born with and brought up with, that, you know, when we're born, we're a mewing, squeaking little pile of stuff which can't do an awful lot, and we're reliant on parents to feed us and clothe us and all the rest of it. As we get older, guess what? We can put on our own socks and our trousers and feed ourselves. And as we get older still, we develop the capacity to go off and earn money independent of the money that our parents gave us. But if at any stage in that you know, um, progression, we make the decision that actually, so you know, young millennial, well, it's too tough to go out there 
and and make the money to buy the house in the face of the extraordinary rises in house prices. So I'll stay at home with mum and dad. I don't blame them. You know, I want to stay at home with mum and dad as well. But guess what? I didn't have that lucky option. I'm, I'm not being tough on millennials, by the way, here, in case anybody, you know, rings you up and jumps down your neck and say, who was that, you know, recidivist talking to you? All I'm saying is develop in yourself the capacity to adapt and know at some time on the, the adaption journey, you will have to make a big, bold decision, which you haven't made before, but it's going to be good for you. I remember years ago in the West Country, selling a house, and the people I was selling the house to, which was a nice house, and they were well able to buy it, but they went back and forth, will we buy the house, won't we buy the house, will we buy the house, won't we buy the house? And eventually, um, the wife, in my hearing, turned around to the husband and said, darling, make a decision. You know it's good for you. And he was a very, very senior executive. But I knew what she was saying because he'd exercised his executive power for years by carefully and calculatingly not making a decision. Other people made the decisions and he moved with oil-like sleepness around those decisions but never got hung with one himself. I've said this many a time on on a lot of a lot of shows and decision making is so crucial to an organization not making a decision a company will get stuck and not move when you make that decision you move forward it may be the wrong decision but you then can adjust it but not but the company will move forward when you do it and i'm 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 shocked to hear, well, I'm not shocked to hear, nothing shocks me anymore, (laughs) that senior executives don't make those decisions. Good leader is listening to everybody. And when other people come up with a decision, giving them the nod to go, okay, you do it. If it works, that person gets a pat on the back. If it fails, the leader is looked on as going, that failed. But that's that's part of the job as well. Yeah, well, we we tend to punish failure excessively and and don't sometimes reward success enough and as a result people become paralyzed with indecision i I remember a couple of times organizations or people in organizations when they heard that i was around warning the organization off about me quite understandably i'd warn an organization off about me as well Um, (laughs) but they they said things like you know he's got a propensity for action as in and i remember one person saying well in my hearing, this is going on. They said, yeah, he's got a propensity for action. They said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, he does things, you know. And he said, well, isn't that what we all do? No, no but he he comes in, he makes big decisions that does things. He, you know, he acts quickly. And, you know, we, we don't want that sort of stuff here. So, you know, there is almost an inbuilt mechanism which says, Jesus, don't let this guy get too close to us. And don't, for God's sake, let him make any decision because, you know, it's going to be really, really painful and we won't enjoy it, and and it'll upset our our nice little stable ship that we're sailing along in. Little realizing that the ship, you know, it's got a great big hairy rock about ten meters off the front bow. It's going to hit it anyway. It's it's quite funny for our Irish and English listeners, you know. That reminds me of something from Father Ted. Oh, action. We don't do that sort of thing around here. <laughs> you know, and for our American listeners, Google Father Ted, you'll get it. <laughs> well, I'll I, I give, give you another sort of, you know, because these conversations always need a bit of colour and flavour in them, I find. But an, another small anecdote from my, my experience, I was sitting with an organisation in London, which I'd originally arrived in, because they needed to drive a transformation program, you know, a sort of change of culture. So we went in and we got all that lined up and we did all, did all that. And I think we reasonably successfully changed the culture. And I finished and said, thank you very much. Took my feed, disappeared over the horizon, reflecting on a job well done. I was then rung up about four or five weeks later to say they had another problem and would I like to come back and discuss it? So I said, well, for sure, we'll come back and discuss it. So I, I went back, and the 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 other problem was, in a nutshell, they were breaching their banking covenants. And of course, when you when you peel back the onion, when you start breaching banking covenants, you discover things like pension shortfalls, and then you discover institutional malaise, and then you discover dysfunctionality between the finance director and the chief executive. And so the whole sorry story starts playing out. So that was the start of the saga. But anyway, um, after the first 
initial two days of dancing on the eggshells and trying to talk to people and being forbidden to talk to this person because of what they might say to me and said all went on. Eventually, they decided that the, the best thing they could possibly do was we'd all go out to dinner. And I, I, I like my food, so I was up for that anyway. So we all went out to dinner, and I discovered myself sitting alongside the chairman of the organisation. I'd never met him before. And anyway, so we kick off and, and you know, polite conversation. We're at a long trestle table. So I said, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm the chairman. So politeness dictates you then have to ask me what I do. So I, I said, well, I, I'm a consultant. I, I drive, you know, big transformation programmes for organisations which are in trouble. Um, and I move very quickly to do so. So to which he said, good man himself, he said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you're in trouble and you've got a big problem and I'm here to see if we can solve it quickly before you go under. He said, what's the problem? I said, you're breaching your banking covenants. He said, I know nothing about this. He was the chairman of the organisation. <laughs> you know, and, and so the whole sorry saga developed. But I, I just, I make, I make the point that that what you see and what you assume is all right and okay and everything is working properly you know because that's the way it works doesn't it once you start digging and peeling back you will be surprised at, at just how sometimes poorly structured key relationships are what a lack of knowledge there is in the organization lack of direction how frightened people are to actually put their hand up you know i'm not saying we should all be whistleblowers but i i, I come back to this very, very basic and short supply commodity of courage. Be brave, be bold, call it. Nobody's going to tear your head off, but say what's on your mind. And if you do, we'll all be the better for it. You know, don't live in a marriage where you're too frightened to say, listen, I'm unhappy. Can we have a chat about this? Because all that's going to happen is the thing's going to go horribly stale from the outside in. You're going to churn and churn away down the years, do nothing for it. You're going to go on a desperately unhappy individual, but it's all because you don't want to rock the apple cart. So you'll live with unhappiness, or in the case of business, a lack of success when you can do something about it. But to do something about it, you have to be brave. You have to open your mouth, stand up and be counted. One of the things that I always say when I listen to one of our politicians talking on the radio, and it brings it back to business as well, always listen to what's being said and what's not being told. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when you go when you go in, you know, it's it's not often what they're saying to you. It's what they don't talk about or the subjects they avoid. That's where the really interesting stuff lies. Yeah, definitely. Rory, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, we we have uh, opened up many avenues, and I hope a lot of creative thinking for a lot of business owners out there. If someone wants to connect with yourself, what's the best way that they can reach out to you? Well, they can, they can give you a call. You can give me a reference. <laughs> but um, probably the best is to e email me. I, I have an unusual but reasonably memorable email it's flying with geese so f-l-y-i-n-g-g-w-e-s-e flying with geese at aol.com and it's also on linkedin rory clayton on linkedin I'm, as I'm well on, i'm on linkedin you'll find me on linkedin just type in flying with geese or rory clayton and i'll come up and i'll get in contact i'm reasonably good in fact i am good about returning you know people's messages people send me messages over linkedin people email me direct um I'm, if you go and do a web search on me, you'll fall over numerous bits and pieces. But most people seem to find, if they want to get hold of me, a pass to my door. But throw in throw an OBE beside it, and you'll 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 find yourself as well. Um, last two questions for you. We've got about one minute. Best business book that you would recommend for people to read? <laughs> it would it wouldn't be a business book. It would be the um, it would be a manual, um, the organisational development manual, the handbook of organisational development. It's it's a great it's a great thick tome, very weighty, but it's packed with pure gold. Um, I, I bought, I think, edition two years ago. To this day, I still update regularly. It takes you through structures, takes you what through different structures, what can go wrong with them, a wealth of information. Um, but whatever the problem you have. If you go in from an OD perspective, go into the index, you'll probably find a keyword 
which will lead you to a part of the organization and part of that book, which will give you the, the, um, the fine post you need to find a solution. Great book. Believe that you need to have that entrepreneurial mindset and the managerial skill set to run an organization. And, you know, some people have one or the other, but if you can marry the two of them together, something magic will happen within an organization. Yeah. I'll give you another quick tip before you close off. Um, when people are faced with a problem, often the problem sits outside their direct experience or knowledge. Okay, and they and they don't do anything about it. In the course of my life, I've been faced with multiple problems. When I don't know the solution, I go down to the local bookshop and I buy a book and I read about it and I teach myself because I've learned that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And I bother to read books. I bother to absorb the information and I bother to then go and try what I'm told in the book. So every time I come across a problem for which I do not have a solution, I say, right, what is the best book on this problem? And I go and buy the thing and I read it. Best advice I can give to anyone. That's exactly, I'm, a, I'm reading three books at the moment, one on copywriting, one on lead funnels, and another one on um, LinkedIn. And, and that's just this month. And I read multiple books. Like my, my go-to guy really on strategy, I have a sitting on my desk here, is Peter Drucker. Um, and yeah, I think written so many books, Mr. Yeah. And I think everybody should. And one of the things I do as well, I implement, test them out to see what works and what doesn't work on it. The final question, the hardest question of the day. Go on. What song would you like us to play out with? (laughs) No problem at all. Uh, Rod Stewart, I am sailing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Rory Clayton, thank you for coming on Business Eye at Dublin South FM. Joe, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You're an easy interviewer. Thank you. I am sailing. I am sailing home again. What if you could have a sustainable business without the liquidity concerns and make your company more profitable? Curious? Check out our tried and tested proven client acquisition formula. Go to www.joedalton.ie and book your free consultation now.